suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Well, hello and welcome, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. It's a podcast where we talk about news and politics and sex and religion. Uh, special episode tonight. We're going to be talking about religion and in particular about the Bible and the mythicism argument and if you're new to this podcast, welcome aboard. You can make comments and it'll appear in the chat. And uh, normally in this podcast, we've got uh, a panel discussion where there's myself and Shay and Joe, and we talk about news and politics of the, of the previous two weeks. And occasionally we have a, se- a special episode. And this is one of those. And uh, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I had Hugh Harris on the podcast and we had an argument about Ukraine and a quote by Christopher Hitchens over the Ukraine, which Hugh and I argued over. And Hugh enjoyed it so much that he wanted to come back and argue about something else. That's, <laughs> that's the sort of guy, that's the sort of guy Hugh is. And uh, so uh, we thrashed over various topics that we might be able to disagree on. And mythicism argument was one of them, which was, uh, you know, did Jesus Christ uh, really exist as a historical figure? Let's just... Forget about, forget about whether he was the son of God, son of God or not. Did he actually exist? And so, that's what we're going to debate tonight. And um, of course, Hugh's been on Facebook pages and various forums for years arguing this. And I thought, if I get into an argument with Hugh on this one, I'm bound to lose. So I've roped in some help. So uh, I've roped in Cam Riley, who's going to join us as well. So um, so uh, tonight. Uh, I'd like to welcome, first of all, Hugh Harris, who's joined in at the very last second with all that shuffling of the microphone. Hugh, welcome. You just made it in time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Couldn't get on. You're here. And Cam Riley, welcome aboard, Cam, for another another episode in the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. Oh, thank you, uh, Trevor. But I thought you invited me on for one of the sex episodes. That's what I was <laughs> prepped for. I didn't know. We were doing this, but I guess I'll just uh, wing it. When do I come on? on When do I get to do the fun stuff like the sex episodes? (laughs) With you on the podcast, Cam, I'm sure the discussion will end up. uh, It's always sexy. When I come on, it's always sexy. That's what you're trying to say. Let me help you out there. Yeah, look, we'll probably talk about Paul and uh, and his policy regarding circumcision, and you could probably work in a sex angle with that when we get to it. So, um, so let me do some introductions for those of you who, uh, who, haven't, who aren't aware of Hugh and Cam. So Hugh Harris, uh, former board member of the Rationalist Society, uh, when he's not writing articles for the Rationale or featuring in the Courier-Mail as an example of a typical family man, <laughs> or playing guitar in a rock band, uh, Hugh tangles with religionists on Facebook. That's your pastime, isn't it, Hugh? That's my, hop- that's my sport, yeah. Indeed. And Cam Riley, um, when not writing books on psychopaths and producing movies about Jesus, Cam can be found producing various podcasts. Uh, many deal with history. He's got uh, 
The Life of the Caesars, The Renaissance, The Cold War. Uh, it's got one dealing with propaganda and current news uh, called The Bullshit Filter. I've been on that one occasionally. And he even does an investment podcast called QAV. So when combined with his prowess at guitar, chess and jiu-jitsu and his title as Brisbane's hey, hey, second hey, most hey, handsome hey. podcaster. Wing hey, let me, let me finish. Let me, <laughs> get the, oh, get the martial arts right. Yeah. Oh, combined with his prowess at guitar, chess and wing sun. Isn't that a... That's uh, it, close enough. <laughs> and his title is Brisbane's second most handsome podcaster. He is indeed a yeah, true yeah, Renaissance yeah. man. So there you go. <laughs> That's wow, I, I gotta gotta say, I'm a little insulted that my Winston Churchill impersonation introduction to the Iron Fist, uh, you didn't pull that out from the archives I tonight. I should. Yeah. I'm sorry. So, um, yeah. So, listen, that's my introduction. Hugh, I guess people are going to say, "Well, why should we listen to you two? What would you guys know about this?" And um, you know, what is your level of expertise, or just sort of tell people what you know and what you bring to the table and maybe what you don't bring to the table. So they've got realistic yeah. expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I had a documentary about the topic um, or interviewed some of the Richard Carrier. Um, <clears throat> but um, I guess I've, I've just read a little bit about it. Um, I was initially quite attracted to the idea some years ago and investigated it a little bit, reading a little bit of Richard Carrier and then um, – about D. Ammon and his responses to Richard Carrier, and that's how I became involved in it. And really, my my um my interest in it is that I think um we need to listen to reason and look at the evidence, and we also need we live in a society where we routinely mock experts and junk their opinions because they don't particularly suit us. And this is something. Uh, oh, there's my daughter appearing in a cameo in the in the in the rear. <laughs> Of the picture, um, we we um, you need the big guns to back you up. No, you? I need it's all tag team debate. She'll, she'll be she'll be on in a minute. Um, but we uh, we 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 do routinely junk scientists and historians and other experts in the field. I guess I don't think we could say that either of the three of us um, are New Testament scholars or ancient historians. I don't know Cameron's full qualifications, so I'll I'll take it um he can he can outline those but um I, I i have simply read on it and followed what the what the scholarship says and i've looked at some of the arguments and formed my own conclusions from those arguments fair enough so cam, for that's me anyone who's not familiar with you cam for those handful of australians just a, a brief outline <sighs> Oh, uh, thank you, Trevor. I, uh, uh, <laughs> I have no qualifications, what to speak of, uh, apart from being Australia's first podcaster for whatever that's worth. Not that anyone ever remembers or cares. Um, my interest in this subject started 30-odd years ago when I was having lunch with a person in Melbourne who was a Christian, and we, got, we were having a friendly discussion about Jesus and you know Christianity and she 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 made a claim something to the effect of there is more evidence to support the historicity of Jesus than for any other figure in history and I said you sure about that and she said absolutely I said well like more than Hitler and she said well no I mean like more than anyone in ancient history and I knew enough history at the time to know that that was nonsense um but I Tried to figure out why does she believe that to be true? She was absolutely convinced that that was true. 
And that started me on a journey that led to, you know, the documentary uh, a few years ago. And um, ultimately, uh, the highlight is uh, being on your show here tonight to discuss it. That's where it's <laughs> all been leading up to this. for 30 years. <laughs> it's, it's been a long journey, but you've climbed the mountain. Yeah. I have, yes. Yes. So what is the, the Jesus myth, the mythicist argument? And that is that um, mythicists say the ancient sources describe Jesus as a celestial or mytho mythological figure, not a real person. So, Hugh, you wrote an article in the Rationale, which is a sort of a newsletter magazine for the Rational Society. and. Yep. You gave uh, some reasons, um, arguments as to why the mythicism argument falls down. So do you want to, I've shared it with um, Cam, he's seen it, and we just thought maybe you could just run through it in the order you've written it and yeah. and just give us your sort of letters of Paul argument to start with and, um, and, and then Cam will take it away and provide a counter argument if he has one. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess the first thing I, I, I was going to say was that in looking at this topic, I think we should look at the Jesus myth um, argument with the same level of scepticism that we would look at um, the arguments for religious beliefs and tenets and all of that sort of thing. And um, my article was really not really tackling the mythicist's argument because I think that would be, that's probably easier. Um, I wanted to put out what some of the um, positive arguments are for um, the existence of the historical figure of, of Jesus, and so I guess the first thing that I that I said was you've got the letters of Paul. So seven of the letters are um, universally regarded as authentic: Galatians, First Thessalonians, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Romans, Philipp Philipp Philippians, Philemon, and the. The letters of Paul for me are quite important if um, if I'm looking at this question because Paul <clears throat> identifies himself as the author of the documents. He's regarded as the author of the documents. He converted roughly three years. Um, he he converted a couple of years after Jesus's death. That's what they think, and he notes in Galatians that he stayed with the first apostle Peter or Cephas and he also um, spent time with Jesus' own brother James. And so, and he notes that as three years after his conversion. So that's going to be in about 35 or 36 common era. So that's not long after Jesus died and that gives an actual connection to the life of Jesus. Now, <clears throat> 10 years ago when I was first Acquainted with this, and I was reading the the uh, stories on the on the internet. You know, when I was doing my Google research, um, all I saw was that there was there was no connection to Jesus. There actually is. So the letters of Paul provide letters shortly after the events of his life, and they um, Galatians eighteen. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas. Stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles. Only James, the Lord's brother. So I'm sure we're going to hear that question shortly. The um, the letters also, I'll quote a little bit from Ehrman's book, Did Jesus Exist? Um, there is no doubt that Paul knew, knew that Jesus existed. He mentions Jesus' birth, his Jewish heritage, his descent from David, 
his brothers, his ministry to Jews, his 12 disciples, several of his teachings, his Last Supper, and his crucifixion. And um, and what most uh, much of what we, Paul has to say about Jesus, therefore, stems from the same early layer of tradition that can be traced completely independently in the Gospels. So you've got an oral tradition, obviously, of storytelling about the life of Jesus, which for the person who thinks that Jesus did not exist, you have to explain what these stories are and how these how these letters came to be written, how these churches came to be set up, how the Gospels eventually became to be written. Um, so going through the letters, you know, there's a few things. The existence of Jesus is referenced in Galatians 4, um, 4.4, that he was born of a woman. Romans 1.3, that he was born under the law. Um, his disciples and brothers, he, Paul knew 12 disciples, Corinthians 1.12. It, it indicates that Peter was known in Corinth before the writings of 1 Corinthians, and it assumes that they were familiar with Cephas and Peter. Um Corinthians 15.5 indicates that the 12, as a reference to the 12 apostles, was a generally known notion within the early Christian church in Corinth and required no further explanation from Paul. And I can go on and go on and go on. And yet, when you go back and read Richard Carrier, he says that Paul mentions nothing about Jesus, only this uh, space angel, uh, you know, and sort of goofy terms like that. There is, There is... A significant amount of evidence in the letters of Paul to suggest that he knew firsthand from sources that actually knew the real person who lived. So, okay, so I don't know if you better go on further than that. But um, well, let's let's hand over to Cam for a little bit. But before before I do, can I just ask? Do you reckon uh, Paul is is the best argument in this whole thing? Before is is it the strongest? Are you leading with your best punch on this one? I or is there I something else you took no, out no, later I, that's I better? I, I don't think it's a. Um, I don't think on its own it's a. It's the strongest argument. I think it is a strong argument that there was a connection to the people who actually knew um, Jesus, um, and there's a connection to what Jesus said and did and what happened to him, and there are some descriptions of that. So in that sense, it's important. But when you combine it with all of the other writings that confirm much of the same thing, particularly um, Josephus. In AD 90, if you combine that co- corroboration, then it becomes quite powerful. Okay, we'll talk about the corroboration because you've got that as separate topics in your argument. So, over to you, Cam. Um, Paul, is it is it compelling what Paul writes about knowing or, or about his about Jesus that he writes about? Is that compelling? Um, look, I think it's interesting. I, I, I don't find it that compelling. But before I get into Paul, I want to go back to um, something that Hugh wrote early on in his article that I, I don't really agree with. He says, um, for atheists, the idea that Jesus didn't exist has obvious appeal. With this truth bomb, we can dismiss Christianity outright. Uh, look, I, I, I disagree with that. I, I tend to think that most atheists I've spoken to, and, and certainly this includes Richard Carrier and Robert M. Price and Raphael Latasta, who are three of the more famous uh, Jesus myth uh, prognosticators, uh, and David Fitzgerald. It, you know, 
we all agreed when I spoke with them that it would make absolutely no difference to us, really, if Jesus existed or didn't exist. You know, I think Robert M. Price was fond of saying that if a, if a letter turned up in a garbage dump in Egypt today or somewhere in Palestine that said, hey, by the way, uh, Jenny, um, meant to tell you I was in Palestine last week and I saw this guy they call Jesus the Christ and uh, gave a lovely speech and I heard it and it was fantastic. If we, if we discovered a primary document that was incontestable in terms of its authenticity, uh, or certainly had all of the hallmarkings of authenticity as a primary contemporary eyewitness account. It would it would make no difference to you know most of the Jesus myth uh, guys. Um, and in fact, they all say they'd be they'd be super excited and be happy about it. They'd be like that'd be fantastic. We finally put that one to rest. That's terrific. Because as an atheist, I, it doesn't matter to me if he existed or didn't exist. If he did exist, I don't believe he was God. And if he didn't exist, I obviously don't have to worry about it. So it, it, it makes no difference. And just in terms of the Jesus myth argument in the first place, what I've always said on this is that personally, I'm agnostic on the issue. I want to get that out there up front. I... Having studied this for 30 years, uh, I don't believe there is sufficient evidence to convince me that he existed, and I don't think there's sufficient evidence to convince me that he didn't exist. So getting back to Hugh's earlier statement that we should treat this as a good sceptic and we should look for evidence to inform the position if we feel the need to take a position on this rather than just stay agnostic. You know, I don't think there's a lot of hard evidence, and we'll see this as we go through uh, on either side. And what I do like about Richard Carrier's approach, where he, in his, I don't know if you've read his book, Proving History, Hugh? I haven't read all of it. I have read bits. Hey, hey, just before we go on, Hugh, there's some little scratching coming from your microphone or something, I think. I don't know. Is it? Is it? Probably my uh, daughter. All right. I don't. It just sounds like there's some scratching. I don't know if you're moving. No, it seems to be, on, or... yeah, hitting a keyboard or something. And it's yeah, oh, probably yeah. hitting a keyboard. Yeah, just be careful. If you just tone down that, it'll help. Thanks. Okay. Fly up, hands above the desk here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, you know, well, in proving history, uh, Richard Carrier explained his approach of, you know, without getting too technical. Basically, his approach is, and he's a, for people who don't know Richard Carrier, he's a, he's an ancient historian, PhD in something. And he's, uh, you know, he's got a PhD in, I think, ancient history, but he's spent a lot of time on the New Testament uh, side of things over the last 20 years. Um, you know, he says that the way he approaches these things is to think or ask the question, what evidence should we expect to see? if Jesus really did exist, and then ask ourselves, what evidence would we expect to see if he didn't exist? And then have a look at all of the evidence and figure out which one of the piles they should go into and see which of those two arguments is supported by the most evidence. He calls it applying Bayes' theorem to ancient history. And I think there's, I think that's not a bad approach. What do you think? So... Okay, well, I guess that I notice a similar trait to Carrier here when presented with the fact that um, Paul obviously knew Jesus' brother, he simply ignores it and moves on to other topics. 
No, he doesn't do that at all. He we can does. talk. About, he, he, no, he, he, uh, he doesn't. We he, can we can get to that, but we can talk about Paul in a second. But I'm talking about just a general approach. How do you how do you find that as a general approach? Do you think it's good approach or? I think the approach, approach the approach. I think partially yes, but I think it also what he what he's setting up is an argument from silence. So he's saying that since um, since Paul doesn't write a full biography of Jesus. Therefore, I do not see in his letters what I would expect to see if Jesus really existed. So, and then Carrier goes on to claim that um, Jesus is a space alien celestial deity of which there is no evidence whatsoever. And so I I, I find that I find his, um, I find his um, arguments to be, like Voltaire said, extremely ingenious, but not learned. And okay. I think when you talk about his qualifications, I think he's a really unique person. He is a um, he is really a strange cat. If okay, you want to think about yeah, it that way, let's let's he's, let's he's not, not let's not get into character assassination. I'm we'll not interested to, in well, character well, assassination. I'm, I'm talking not, about. I'm not I wanted I'm, to I'm get your view on the open. approach to determining what is most likely to be true when looking at ancient history. That's all. Stick to the facts. Stick to a logical argument. Let's avoid character assassination. We're like 20 fucking minutes into this, Hugh, and already you've collapsed into character assassination, which I have to say is the first sign of somebody who can't make a coherent argument. He's a strange cat. That's not. Ex- that's. The, I couldn't say that's assassination. Let's. let's oh, we haven't got that. onto Paul. We haven't got onto Paul. Or we haven't Carrier. talked about that. We've yeah. just accepted the, the, that. We've just the basic accepted question the was: What would you Paul. expect to see if he was a real man? What would you expect to see if it was made up? Look at the evidence, and which yeah. box does it fall into? As an approach, you kind of are not really willing to wholeheartedly adopt that approach. Well, Cameron is trying to trick me into accepting an argument <laughs> from silence. Oh, and I'm not, uh, <laughs> okay. No, that, you're, 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 I, I, I don't accept. I, it's, I don't accept. It was a it's not. Question. Yeah, well, you're going to say that. Are you no, not going to argue? You don't that, know what I'm going to say. It was a simple question. What do you answered, think of that? Answered. Approach? Let's stick to the facts and move I on. I don't think All you right, liked it that much. Anyway, you've made your point, Cam, as as you've put that forward as a <laughs> as an approach, and Hugh has oh, said he doesn't me. like the approach. All right. Let me talk I about apologize. Paul. I apologize. Let yep. me talk about Paul. Now, Paul, for people who don't know, is our earliest written source uh, of any sort about Jesus. As you said, uh, the assumption is that he probably became uh, converted somewhere three, four, five years after Jesus died. We really don't know because we don't know when Jesus died, so it's very hard to make those sorts of statements. But you see a lot of that sort of stuff in New Testament uh, scholarship. We don't know when he died, so and we don't know when Paul was converted, so how do we know? But, you know, there are assumptions that are made that are mostly dubious, but let's go with that. Uh, the, Paul, the writings of Paul that we have, most scholars date from about 50 CE to about 60 CE, roughly dated. Uh, the assumption is in, in New Testament circles that Jesus died around about 33 CE. Um, so if, that, if those assessments are correct, those guesses are correct, Paul's letters are written 17 to 27 years um, later. Now, 
The key thing to point out with Paul is he is our very earliest source and he is not an eyewitness, doesn't claim to be an eyewitness. In fact, um, says the opposite, says he, you know, he wasn't there. So he didn't see Jesus, um, didn't hear him speak, uh, any of that kind of stuff. The interesting thing about his authentic letters, as you point out, is there is almost, not completely, but almost no mention of Jesus's life or teachings whatsoever. And Seven letters. That's a lot of lot of writing. And, and as a percentage of the New Testament, it's a huge chunk of the writing. And then you have the the, the supposedly inauthentic letters on top of that. Out of all of the authentic letters, though, he tells us very little about Jesus. He tells us, as you say, he mentions a couple of times that uh, he was born of a woman, that he was born into the law, and that he was crucified, and that he appeared later on to the 12 and then to one as untimely born uh, like Paul later on. Uh, but he doesn't claim that, you know, he, he, he saw the resurrected Jesus or, or, or ghost Jesus or, you know, whatever it was. Um, so the thing that I find interesting about Paul is not that he didn't write a biography, but that he writes next to nothing. Like if you go to any church today on a Sunday and you listen to the preacher, over and over again, you'll hear them say, and the Lord said this, and the Lord said that, and the Lord said the other thing. And then when the Lord was over here, he had two cups of coffee instead of one, and he couldn't get to sleep that night. So he went and got some medical cannabis and he smoked that and that cured his insomnia. See how I'm blending my subjects here? See, that's the kind of clever shit I can do, Trevor. You should have me on more often. Um, <laughs> so... But Paul doesn't do that. You would expect Paul in various places to go, well, you know, what the Lord did and what the Lord said. He doesn't do that at all in his letters. He mentions teachings, but he says, I received this from the Lord, or he'll refer to the the Tanakh, the, the Jewish scriptures, more often than not. He's referring to what the scriptures say. Um. So I find that very interesting. Now, in terms of what he does say, yes, he, he mentions a couple of uh, very, very limited statements, but he doesn't date it. He doesn't say when he was born. He doesn't say where he was born. He doesn't say when or where he died or was crucified. He doesn't say, you know, a few years before I was uh, on the scene, this happened. He does say that he used to oppress Christians. Um, early on. Um, very brief mention of that gets fleshed out later on in Book of Acts written by somebody else. In terms of uh, one of your statements, though, you say the letters of Paul connect him to those who knew the real person of Jesus. How do you know they knew the real person of Jesus, Hugh Harris? Um, I, I'm back. Sorry. Um, yeah, I think you've, you've under uh, underplayed the amount that um, Paul mentions um, Jesus in his letters, and we have to remember that this is not a sermon. It's he is writing letters about um, theology to churches, and he's arguing about um, circumcision and whether whether we should convert the Gentiles and all of that sort of thing. So. You wouldn't expect him to write a whole um, biography of Jesus because it wasn't a no, biography. No, but you would expect him to that say that what Jesus said. What Jesus said about circumcision is 
What Jesus said about the well, Gentiles is—I don't think so. Not not given not given Paul's bullyish character. And you know what? who is it? Well, how can you say what he should have said? This Wouldn't is this is what I'm talking about. Quote Jesus I'm, though, if he's talking about you're talking, he said he's talking from, about theology. It's, it's, an, argument, about it's an argument from it's an argument from silence. You've got seven authentic letters. You've got a whole lot of communication, and you've got a very very. Um, a recent contact with um, with the with the people who knew Jesus after. You also have the identification by name of Jesus Christ in these letters. Uh, Twenty years after Jesus died. Now, if he was just if he was just making this up, well, um, at some point we've got to accept what uh, scholarship says, what the ancient historians say. It's everyone universally agrees he died around about 30 to 36 common era. So yeah, just, around yeah, about just, that, that time. Yeah, I'm just going to bring you back to the question. So the question from Cameron was along the lines of why do you think they knew Jesus, I think was the question. Is that right, Cam? Something? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What? Um, because of his letters and what he says in those letters and because those letters are seen to be genuine and because they're supported by other documents, such as he Joseph. Says, they're corroborated. He says, he says he knew Peter and James. You're saying they knew exactly. Jesus. How do you know they knew Jesus? Because of their testimony to Paul. That's how we understand history. How we do just, you we, know we have what to, their we testimony to, make, to Paul was? We have to make judgments on history on the basis of probability. So if someone testifies that they knew a real person named Jesus and spread that name 20 years after he died and no one had a problem with it, on the basis of probability, do you decide he was they're talking about real people or are they talking about a celestial space alien? Okay, so, so Cam, let's break Cam, it are down. You, Cam, are you Richard Carrier, better, Hold on here. Cam, are you sort of getting to the point that if if Paul was making all of this up, then no, uh, what can you, you can't rely on it, and you don't. It's possible. Is that what you're saying that he was? Well, this is how it works. Paul, Paul. Okay, so Paul said he met Peter and Paul. We don't have any confirmation of that. All we have is Paul say so. But let's say that he's telling the truth, and let's say that the letter where he says that is authentic. Let's let's assume that those things are both true. He says that Peter says he knew Jesus. Now. Um, how do we, why should we trust Peter in this instance? Paul met a guy who said that he knew Jesus. Why should we trust the guy that he met that said he knew this guy? The reason we should trust it is because of the oral tradition that developed after these documents were written and in the setting up of these churches and because it's quite clear that um, people were telling stories about the life of Jesus that inspired the growth of the religion. How else can you possibly explain the growth of the religion if they weren't inspired by the story of a charismatic preacher? How can you... How can you... We'll get to that. No, the first question... That's not the question, though. The question is, why should we trust Peter? Oh, I just answered it. Because of the growth of the church and because of the oral tradition and because... How would he have grown a church if it was based on him making up someone who, in, who to people who knew him 20 years ago? The Mormons, and, I think, and, and the Mormons exploded too because Joseph Smith said he knew Moroni. Well, did Joseph Smith exist? Yeah, but did Moroni? 
Was there truth to that story? If your assumption is, if your claim is, if something, if your claim is that a church exploded, therefore the origin stories must be true, I find uh, very hard to accept at face value. Well, you need to explain it then. How did it arise out of a mythical celestial space alien? How did Mormons arise out of Joseph Smith seeing invisible golden plates by Moroni? Because people are suckers. That's not, a, that's not an answer you, to my question. And Joseph it is. Smith it's is. the same thing. It's People are suckers. So, people essentially, so we don't get around in circles, I think <laughs> Hugh is saying the subsequent developments prove the authenticity of the statement. I'm, I'm not saying they prove it. I'm saying that they lead, they, lead, they lead all New Testament and ancient historians to conclude that the letters are legitimate and that they knew um, Peter and that Paul knew James and that Jesus existed. Not 100% would agree with all of it, but... Um, that's one of the key reasons. So Paul met a guy who said he knew Jesus, therefore we should just believe that Jesus existed. No, I've already explained that because it's corroborated by the oral tradition and all of these people. What oral tradition? Another. What oral tradition? You're saying that you don't agree that was any oral What oral tradition are you referring to? Where's the evidence of the oral tradition that you keep talking about? 2.2 billion Christians. <laughs> the growth of the church. <laughs> That's... That's not old traditions. That's 30, 35 million. The church in Corinth, the church in Thessalonia, the growth of the churches, they don't just grow out of someone um, inventing a celestial deity. They, they, grow out of, they grow out of an agreed story, and the story is written down, and um, Paul says quite a number of consistent things that are then reflected in the Gospels which reflect the, the fact that these stories were distributed distributed around and then later greatly embellished to form these um, Gospels, which I would totally agree are um, very myth mythologised versions of Jesus' life. But it still means existed. We don't know. So I with not... your argument, the problem with your argument that the Gospels corroborate Paul is because... The, the people who wrote the Gospels came from Paul's communities. Of course they corroborate Paul. They're Paul's communities that are writing these stories. Yeah, but you're, you're now going to a different argument. You asked me where the oral tradition, where's the evidence for it? That's the evidence for the oral tradition. Okay, but that was but my that's point. Clear. That's my point. point. Is, his point the is oral tradition on... comes from Paul. And, uh, and Peter... And James. Where's the oral tradition from Peter and James? What writings the, do we have? What writings do we have from Peter or James or people who knew Peter or James? We have. What writings do you expect to have? No, answer my question. What writings do we have from Peter and James? What and writings do you have of the people who knew the Buddha? In five hundred. the question, BC. Hugh. What writings do we have from Peter and James? You can just say none. Well, just there, answer the question, Hugh. Well, there is. I don't. I don't believe there is any that are that are legitimate. There are none that are legitimate. So we don't know what Peter or James or their communities thought about Jesus, about Paul, about Jesus's teachings, about whether or not he was the Messiah. 
we know whether or not he even existed. We we absolutely literally know nothing about what they thought. Yep. So how do you explain the letters of Paul and the growth of the um, Christian church in the first couple of centuries? Oh, well, we'll get to that what, later. What but the, the letters stories, of Paul, I don't have what to was explain. The, what were the stories that they were talking about then? How did the, what inspired the growth? Well, we'll that's, get to that. That's, that's, that's we'll, later we'll on in your, the, later we'll on in your the, article. We'll get to that. We'll get to the inspire what the growth. But just, Paul um, Cam, how do you explain um, Paul referencing Jesus? Like, if he's written about him, is Paul making it up or has somebody else made it up? Is he lying? Is he hallucinating? How do you explain his reference to Jesus? If, well, we we what, know the Christian is, we know there was a Christian community, or they weren't called that, obviously, but we know there was a Jesus community uh, predating Paul. We don't know for how long predating Paul. We don't know anything about really where or when it started, but we know again from Paul's authentic letters that he was oppressing them for some reason. It's very hard for anyone to explain why he would have been doing that and under whose authority he would be doing that. But he, he seems to have been oppressing them for some reason and then he converted. So he is hearing stories from people that are around him as part of his community. Who they were, we don't know. How he got converted, we really don't know. Where he was in the years between when he converted and when he finally went to Jerusalem some three years ago, the first three years later, the first time, and then I think he goes back 15 years later. Um but we don't really know what stories he was hearing and where, what, how, how widespread those stories were. Because again, everything that we have in terms of Christian writing from Paul onwards comes from the Pauline community. We know that there were other Jesus communities who believed vastly different things about Jesus, including a very large community in the second and third centuries who didn't believe Jesus existed as a mortal man, as flesh and blood. They believed Jesus was an ethereal being. Um, but, you know, we have very little, uh, uh, you know, writings from them or any of the other Jesus communities that were around because they were got none. You've got none from them. That's just a made-up um, story. What, what, what community thought that Jesus was an ethereal being? The uh, Gnostics and... Based on what? Sorry, what do you mean? Based, based on, on what evidence? I don't understand your question. What, what evidence what have you got that the, Gnostics, that the Gnostics thought that Jesus didn't exist as a person? Analysis of the Nag Hammadi scriptures. There's quite extensive scholarship on the, the, the other early Christian what? communities, the Ebionites, the Marcionites and the Gnostics had very different beliefs about Jesus and about Paul, by the way. But, yeah. Well, Have you read they, the Nagharmadi scriptures? I haven't. But do they say that Jesus did not exist? And Yeah. They didn't believe that he was flesh and blood because they believed anything that was flesh and blood was sinful and Jesus couldn't be sinful, so therefore he couldn't have been flesh and blood. So he didn't. The My understanding is that most of the Gnostics believe that he was a divine creation of God who came down to earth and was um, crucified, etc. Not as a flesh That's and blood. That's not correct? Yeah, I, I, 
they, they didn't believe that he was flesh and blood. I think they believed there was the appearance of crucifixion. I don't think they. I don't think they. I don't think their views are consistent with Richard Carrier's celestial um, space well, the, alien who came celestial. down from fourth level of heaven to a to a low to a lower level. You know where he gets that from, right? The space alien reference that yeah. carrier that Hugh keeps referring to it comes yeah. from somewhere. No, I don't think he does. I don't. Okay. Uh, uh, well, okay. I'll, I'll read. I'll read to you from Richard Carrier in a speech when he says that the original Jesus can be found in Philo as a space alien. Richard Carrier, I'm going to start by telling you something that a lot of people don't know about which is the original Jesus was a space alien. We know from Philo of Alexandra, who was writing in the 20s and 30s AD. Is that is that the argument you're going to make, Cameron? No. I'm talking about actually Paul. Uh, you're talking about, um, well, the Philo, Philo reference is completely discounted. So you're talking about Romans 1 to 3? I don't know. I didn't uh, prepare for the notes it, because it, it wasn't in your thing. It does. It doesn't really matter where Carrier got his space alien reference from. Like, if somebody wants to use colourful language, good on them. But he's <laughs> just a commentator using colourful language. But um, well, but Cameron, no, still... it's, it's because sorry, let me back a sec. It's because in one of his letters, Paul says that he he uh, <laughs> went up into. Uh, the heavens, um, where he saw Jesus fighting, um, you know, sort of space demons. And it's just like this big LSD hallucination package uh, passage in Paul. I don't have the reference right there, but that's what Carrier's referring to because in one letter Paul does refer to Jesus as some sort of a space angel. He's an angel up in the heavens that he saw doing cool shit. That's this what he's talking he's, about. He didn't just he, didn't just make it up. This would be yeah, what Paul well, says. it sounds pretty made up to me. I, I, I think that's where the listener needs to exercise their reverse scepticism on claims such as that. Would this what, be what where I, Paul what, says, hold on, I think I found the reference, where Paul says he has disarmed and subjugated all the supernatural principalities and powers, angels and authorities. That's kind of... Yeah, that's, that's close. That's it. That's part of it. Yeah, no. Well, there's, there's, you know, on the balance of probabilities, I don't think you get space aliens from that. Um, but I guess the argument is that Paul, in his writing, doesn't talk about Jesus, the man, his teachings, his life, as as is as is as he is described in the other gospels. And no, that's true. So there's a distinct difference in the way that that Paul describes him more in the spiritual. Um, realm than as a real man i'll grant you that but i did just and, tell you guys yeah. all of the references to jesus as a real person I, in fact i didn't tell you all of them they're a substantial so it's clear that but, paul thought that jesus was a real person okay but that's what come back to cam cam just what is the explanation for paul's referencing to christ if it's not true what why is it there did he write it? Did someone else write it? Was he making it up? What, you know, we do have this guy writing 
and it's a references to Jesus. So what, what is the explanation if Jesus didn't exist? How did those get there? Did he make it well, up? Well, yeah. What, I don't, what's your I best don't, guess? No, I don't have an explanation, but, I, I, you know, A, I know a lot of people make a lot of stuff up. You can go back to my favourite Joseph Smith uh, example. Um, maybe Paul made it up. Maybe Paul, I mean, certainly there is stuff there in Paul's letters that he did make up. I mean, he says that Jesus appeared to him and told him the world was going to end in his lifetime, and it obviously didn't. So as I say in my film, either Jesus was lying to Paul, uh, Jesus got it wrong, uh, or maybe the world did end and just no one noticed, or Paul's telling fibs. I mean, it's quite obvious that, by my reckoning anyway, it's probably the latter of the four. So Paul's Paul does make stuff up, but did Paul make up all this stuff? Did he hear it from people who made it up? Who were his sources? Who was he listening to? How much credibility do they have as sources? We don't know. So it's it's not nothing, Paul's statements, that he heard these things. He never saw Jesus, but maybe he did. He doesn't say when or where or how. It's really hard, or he doesn't say who his sources are. It's really hard to tell where he's getting it all from. But, you know, he says it, so there's that. Okay, Whether or not so what, we should believe some random what, what, one, one thing dude I read in the Roman Empire who said he heard something and go, well, that must be true, I find that a bit of a stretch. Okay, before we just move on from Paul and to other topics, what, one thing I read was about these interpolations where there might be something written in the margin and that that then subsequently makes its way into the text. So where, where for example, um, um, people looking at the text write margin notes and then when the text is reproduced, those margin notes enter into uh, the text proper as a, as a, and it wasn't part of the original author's uh, work. And, and that happens seemingly regularly in this stuff and so think, one argument yeah. is that where paul refers to james brother of jesus that that could one argument is for example that paul never wrote that in fact that was in the margin and it made its way in later what do you think i that? think i think that's a reference to josephus or josephus sorry i think the carrier makes that argument in relation to josephus do you agree with that cameron yeah, there is interpolation. Uh, most scholars, not just Carrier, pretty much uniformly across New Testament scholarship believes that the Testimonium Flavianum is uh, interpolation. But there is also okay. the possibility that it crept into Paul. That's one explanation for the brother-in-law. The other one that Carrier says is, well, Christians today refer to other Christians as brother or sister. Um, maybe he was using it in the same way. There are arguments, quite good arguments, I think, against that. There are arguments about the way that the word in uh, Greek is used, brother, in context. Um, so, yeah, again, maybe that's something, but, again, it's it's not a lot, really. No, I think it's quite clear that Paul's referring to Jesus as brother. I think the argument that he's referring to brother in another way is ridiculous, given that he's just finished referring to Paul. Um, but I think the challenge with Paul's letters... Referring to James, I think. He James, did I say something else? Um, Paul, yeah. The, the the problem for the Jesus myth argument with the letters of Paul is that the the straining to come up with some sort of celestial 
being rather than a real person is not credible. The skeptic has got to reject that argument outright. It's ridiculous. For instance, Carrier argues that Romans 1.3, where it says Jesus being the seed of David, describes his incarnation from a cosmic sperm bank rather than the usual interpretation as Jesus as a descendant of David. Now, let's face it, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's clearly referring to his descent from David. Um, in Carrier's interpretation, Jesus apparently possesses a surrogate human body, thus the religious requirement of a blood sacrifice was fulfilled by his crucifixion by demons. It says none of that in the letters of Paul. And if it does say that, someone should tell us where that is. It doesn't say it. It's where, where the argument is weak the proponents of the argument, such as Carrier and others, have to basically come up with explanations, insert their own interpolations into the arguments and interpret things in quite a ridiculous manner in order to make it um, work out. You know, it would be wonderful and it would be easy to dismiss um, religion and funding and all of that sort of stuff if you could just say that uh, Jesus didn't exist. It might not, it might not matter to us. Um, but these arguments for particularly the letter of letters of Paul are quite ridiculous. Yeah, I think, I think you're, um, you know, like I, I think that the space angel thing based on, you know, the combination of the writings of Paul and Philo and the ascension of Isaiah um, is an argument. I think to dismiss it outhand is probably uh, not a great approach. You can disagree with it though. That's fine. I don't think it's really a big deal, though, in the whole list of things. I think we should move on and look at your other arguments. Okay. Um, so um, oh, we'll be here Hugh. all night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh, well, you, again. you don't have to disagree with me. Um, Hugh, please just accept you, what I say. And, Hugh, would you like to yes. move on through your article and, and pick out a... All right. So corrob corroboration... Oh, let's, let's not skip over James, James, authenticity of the sources. Yeah, I'm going to go back to that, but I, I would, oh. wanted to mention corroboration directly <laughs> after the letters of Paul, if that's okay with you guys, because I know you just, want to tear my, you just want to tear my article to shreds. You don't want to discuss the actual issues. But, uh... Is that what your article is about? <laughs> Isn't yes. that... I thought that's what this we kind of, this kind of goes against your first point that atheists don't care about this issue because they they're quite keen on uh, destroying anyone who says that he exists. No, no, we don't care about <laughs> if he existed. We care about bad arguments. Well, well, corroboration. Uh, Josephus um, provides independent corroboration of Jesus in um, by mentioning his brother James and his um, his death. And his attestation in multiple sources provides pretty solid evidence. Combine that with Paul, and then you've got a pretty solid argument, much more than many other um, ancient um, historical people that are presumed to exist. So um, also, you know, um, Jesus is the second most attested Jewish Palestinian of the first century. The only one who is more is Josephus because he's the, um, the one who wrote um, what's regarded as the, um, the only document um, from, that, from that place in that period that we, that, that we can look at. So, um, 
that that's corroboration for you. You want to you yeah. want to go on and argue about the sources? We can do yeah, that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, well, I'm go I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the test testimonium Flavianum by Josephus. I agree, it's an interpolation. I don't need it for my argument. Um, Paul knows James. It's corroborated by Josephus' reference to the James brother of Jesus. All scholars accept, um, well, all I shouldn't say all, virtually all accept that the testimony of Flavianum has a kernel of truth to it that it was that it was altered by Christian scribes. However, there are there are other scholars who think that the testimony of Flavianum is true in its totality. I don't know for people listening whether we should read what it says. Um, it's certainly not crucial to my argument, though. So, if you're happy to agree with me, we can move on. Uh, agree with you about what exactly? That, the power, um, the magical that, power of attestation, or just about Josephus? Just about Josephus. Yeah, look, Josephus, the testimony in Flavianum, which says basically, uh, you know, there was this man called Jesus. If in fact he was a man, because he was the son of God. Um, you know, most scholars say Josephus as a Jew would never say such things, so that's obviously been added to some point uh, at, to his writings at some point by a Christian scribe. The whole the whole issue of attestation I find unimpressive. I mean, attestation isn't evidence of existence; it's evidence of attestation. It's evidence that people were talking about this story, not evidence that he existed. People talk about all sorts of crazy stuff. You know, if you believe the QAnon folks, and there's millions of those, uh, uh, JFK Jr. is going to return and, and usher in Trump as president and messiah of the White House. People are talking about that all over the place. Doesn't mean there's any truth to it. What That's not true now. Wasn't true 2,000 years ago. Um, you know, you write, that's all you've got. You, you write, compared to most figures in ancient history, we have an abundance of evidence about Jesus. Like what? Like all the evidence that I've already mentioned. Um, all you have from history prior to cameras, I'm not sure what you're thinking history is supposed to be informed by if it's not by written evidence and attestation. We didn't have video cameras back then. We can't go and meet the people because they're long gone. So... History is a game of probabilities and uh, using the historical method. So I don't, I just don't think that argument is relevant. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I, you know, I do history shows for a living. So let me, let me, this is something I spend a lot of time doing, and I do mostly ancient history. So, you know, getting back to the Christian lady I had lunch with 30 years ago, where she said there's more evidence for Jesus than anyone else in history. You know, it, it, we have, if you go back to Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and Alexander the Great, who are the people that are normally pulled up for these sorts of discussions, um, we, have, we have contemporary accounts of them. We have, we have the writings of Julius Caesar, his own writings. We have the writings of Augustus Caesar, his own writings. We have the writings of Cicero, who knew both Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar, and we've got tons of him talking about both of them. So we've got plenty of first-hand uh, primary evidence for the existence of those people. If you go back to Alexander the Great, we don't have 
primary or even secondary sources for Alexander the Great in terms of biographical sense. We have tertiary sources who we know based their writings on the first and second generation sources. But we do have contemporary evidence of Alexander the Great in Persia as a Babylonian stellar that mentions when Alexander came through and ransacked the city. It was a, like it was a, a, a book of accounts on our economy suffered because Alexander came in uh, and with his armies. So we have primary evidence for quite, you know, a, a few actually people from this period because if you go to the letters of Cicero, for example, he talks about hundreds of people that he knew. So that's stronger evidence than anything we have for Jesus. We don't have a single contemporary uh, source for Jesus, not a single eyewitness account, not a single account of anyone who uh, lived uh, around the time that he lived and, and, you know, saw him or heard him speak or whatever, let alone knew him or his own writings. The closest thing we have is Paul saying that he knew Peter and Peter said that he knew Jesus. Yeah, um, but uh, but you you full you know full well that that's the same for um, most figures from that um, that range of ancient history. So you're sure, just going to say that, evidence for you're just going to you're just going to say that <laughs> the lack you know, of know, evidence is an evidence. I, I, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you here. I'm just saying that um, that that would apply to virtually everyone else. So like As Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, of course, didn't exist. No, we have we um, have yeah, Alexander actually, the Great was have, written a hundred years after have, he after he lived. We have you're not listening what? here. We have contemporary evidence of Pontius Pilate. Uh, we have his name on a record on a stellar again or a piece of rock. And uh, as I said, we have contemporary no. accounts from Babylon of Alexander the Great marching through the city. And we have coins that were printed when he was alive with his face on them. So it's not the same as Alexander the Great. Biographical yeah, details, yeah, they come, they're, they're written a long time later. But we have contemporary evidence. Now, let's talk about your other sources you mentioned. You mentioned in your article Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny the Younger. Um, you say Jesus is also mentioned in Roman sources Tacitus, Suetonius, and Pliny the Younger. Yeah, not exactly. I have issue with that. Tacitus. Exactly. He is mentioned in it, particularly Tacitus. Tacitus says. Um, these people were called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Now, the issue with that is, I have a couple of issues with that. Um, number one, Tacitus is not known for being exactly rigorous in his historical methods. I, I've read all of Tacitus because I use it a lot for my shows and Tacitus is uh, all over the place. It's not uh, historical uh, by any sense. I mean, there's probably a lot of it's propaganda, but there's some that's probably historical, particularly when he's talking about the, the Caesars and all that sort of going on. In terms of this, though, there's a couple of issues with the quote. He says, uh, Christus from whom the name had its origin. Now, you know what Christus means, I assume, Hugh. Yeah, so Christ in Latin. Which means what? You go and make your argument and stop prodding me with questions. Oh, well, it's just uh, giving you an opportunity to jump in. Christ isn't a name, right? Christ is a title. Christ is um, the Latin version of the Greek version of Messiah, 
which, uh, sorry, the Greek is Messiah of Messiah, the Hebrew word, which basically means the anointed one. Um, you know, ancient times in Jerusalem and in other cultures as well, if you were becoming a king or a priest, you would be anointed with oils and herbs and that sort of stuff as part of the anointing ceremony in the process. So, you know, Joseph, uh, sorry, not Josephus, Tacitus, Tacitus would know, we would assume, what Christ meant, that it was a title, it meant anointed one. But who? Who is the Messiah that he's referring to here? They had had lots of Messiahs, uh, Messiah claimants, Messiah wannabes. Josephus mentions a few. It's not very, not very clear to me why he would use a title that is sort of ambiguous. Which so an argument, an argument from an argument from silence again. So if Tacitus had have said Jesus, you would accept it. Well, maybe again. Jesus so it, it, and it identifies him by, by saying, called Christians by the populace, which we know who Christians refer to. They refer to Jesus Christ, and also um, that he was uh, crucified by Pontius Pilate. So that's why um, New Testament scholars, virtually all, agree that this is a legitimate re reference to Jesus. Could he not Here's be just what, repeating? So, could he not be just could, repeating the Christian story? Like, couldn't he, could he not be just saying, "This is what Christians think"? He could be. Well, that's what Ehrman says. But, but he's a he's he's not a Christian source, is he? Ehrman says, and on Tacitus, at the same time, the information is not particularly helpful in establishing that there really lived a man named Jesus. How would Tacitus know what he knew? It is pretty obvious that he had heard of Jesus. But he was writing some 85 years after Jesus would have died. And by that time, Christians were certainly telling stories of Jesus. It should be clear in any event that Tacitus is basing his comment about Jesus on hearsay rather than, say, detailed historical research. But even more to the point, brief though his comment is, Tacitus is precisely wrong in one thing he says. He calls Pilate the procurator of Judea. We now know from the inscription discovered in 1961 at Caesarea that as governor, Pilate had the title and rank not of procurator, one who dealt principally with revenue collection, but of prefect, one who also had military forces at his command. This must show that Tacitus did not look up any official record of what happened to Jesus written at the time of his execution, if in fact such a record existed, which is highly doubtful. He therefore had heard the information. So it's evidence. That's just, that's just speculation. It's it, they were they were referred to as prefects and procurators, and it, it doesn't really matter. That that reference from Tacitus, would you prefer it to say that there was Jesus who was a celestial deity invented by Paul, who um, they they have made up that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. It doesn't say that. It says there was a real person, and so that's how it links I'm just, that. I'm just quoting what Bart. It's a better Ernie. reference. I'm just quoting what Bart. Ernie. You like quoting Bart, so I'm just quoting Bart back to you, man. That's from Bart. Yeah, I mean, and I've said that it's. We don't know. It could possibly come from Christians telling him that. It could come from other other areas, but it doesn't. You know, it's still a reference to him. When did yeah, he write as... this? When did Tacitus write this? Yeah. Uh, one one hundred and sixteen common era. So eighty odd years after his death, and we, we, 
commonly assumed date of his death. Yes. No evidence. He's he's talking about Christians and Christ. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's all and made up. It's all a conspiracy. He, Christians were look, he, no he's, one's, he's, no he's, one's he's, doubting I mean, that Christians existed. A, a man repeating the Christian story <laughs> eighty years after the death of Jesus. Yes. Yeah. Is evidence of Jesus? Like, that seems a long time. Well, even if it's based on his followers, it mentions his uh, followers, Christians. It mentions that he was um, crucified, which is consistent with what Paul says and what the Gospels say. But, but so it confirms the... these things. It is really just being um, obtuse just, to suggest just... that it's not a legitimate reference. And that's why most people think that Tacitus is quite a good reference. The other ones, but I don't think... But he's just repeating what the Christians are saying at the time. Which is what Bart Ehrman's saying. He's just, just passing just on stories that he heard. Christians are saying. It's so not it's evidence just, for anything. He hasn't pretended to have studied it. He's just saying this is this is the story. Yes. This is what people are saying. He hasn't, he hasn't pretended to have researched no. it. He's and how do, you, how do you distinguish that from the rest of history, Trevor? That's well, what well, people do. They say, they say what other people told them happened. Yeah, but that, and we don't say, unless they were there. Unless they were there. 80 years after the event has very little value. That's where you say this really is valueless because he's <laughs> simply repeating. Is. And well, no, but, the, but we don't believe most history, though. Like even when I do the Caesar Alexander stuff, Hugh, I'm always saying to people, look, this is probably not true, but this is what has been passed down to us. These are the stories that we were being told. Well, we don't know if there's any, like reading Tacitus in particular, like he's all over the place talking about, you know, Caligula or Nero, who he hates, but he can't really figure out why. And a lot of the stories are crazy and over the top and they don't match up with Suetonius's version, etc. But that he's, you know, we don't know what the truth is. All we know that these stories have been passed down to us. And that's the same with Tacitus. Suetonius, to move on, you, you mentioned Suetonius. The, he, he mentions Christian sort of twice. And when he's talking about the life of Claudius, he says, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, with an E, he expelled them from Rome. Now, the question for a historian is, what disturbances is he referring to? Uh, Claudius reigned from January 41 to October 54. We know of no disturbances on behalf of Christians at Rome uh, at the time. So who is, who is Suetonius referring to? What are these things? We don't know. He then refers to, uh, in Nero, his book on Nero, he says, after the great fire of Rome, he says, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition, um, refers to, um, you know, this is in 64 CE. And again, doesn't make a lot of sense. I did an interview uh, a few months ago with uh, an Australian historian, Stephen Dando Collins, who's written a book recently on the Great Fire of Rome. And we were talking about how none of this stuff about the Christians being blamed for the Great Fire of Rome makes a lot of sense. Number one, in 64, Christians were like very, very small group in Rome. They may have been slightly annoying to people in their street, but you know, this is a this is a city with like a million people in it at the time. There was probably fifty Christians at most, maybe hundreds, but they're not going to be great troublemakers. And when you look at um, 
some of the things that Tacitus says about after the great fire. He says, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. Would make a lot more sense if we were talking about something like the cult of Isis, who worshipped animal gods. So dressing them up, they used to dress up in animal skins as part of their celebrations, would make a lot more sense if Tacitus is referring to the cult of Isis, which Nero had been part of and just had a very public falling out with when his wife died, etc., etc. Anyway, this is what Ehrman says about Suetonius. Even less helpful as a reference found in the writings of the Roman biographer Suetonius. In any event, even if Suetonius is referring to Jesus by a misspelled epithet, he does not help us much in our quest for non-Christian references to Jesus. Jesus himself would have been dead for some 20 years when these riots in Rome took place. So at best, Suetonius would be providing evidence, if he can count for evidence, that there were Christians in Rome during the reign of Claudius, but this could have been the case whether Jesus lived or not. Yeah, I agree with that. Why don't we move on? I, I, I think the, the, the mentions of Jesus in these other Roman sources are uh, small, incremental uh, bits of evidence for the existence of Jesus. I'm not saying that they're a lay-down, knock-down argument at all, and I agree with uh, Ehrman's well, the- comments. Um, so I don't think we need to labour the point. Okay, but the point is, just to be clear to the people listening, is that these references are all talking about Christians and stories they've heard. Decades later, a century later, case of Suetonius, they're writing stories that they've heard. It's not really evidence for existence. It's evidence for stories. Yeah, which is history. Yeah, it's um, it's not great evidence, but it's it's evidence that Christians thought um, there was a Jesus who lived and was crucified. Christians. Okay, moving on. Thought that, yes. Beyond corroboration, Hugh. Next point. Um, so I've mentioned um, the assumption of, of existence in all of the, in particularly the opponents of the church, take Celsus, for example. Um, no one's really raised any doubts about the actual existence of Jesus until the late 1700s when, say, the French um, Volney and Duplis uh, began writing about it, uh, that that tends to support an oral tradition in that the people close to the time of Jesus knew he existed. There was no doubt about it. Paul's letters 20 years after weren't disputed. The followers were definitely following something, um, most likely the life of a charismatic prophet. So that's... One thing, um, the rise of the church. Oh, slow down. Slow down. Hold your horses there, Jack. I've got to listen to a whole... Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's why we're here. Do you not understand the nature of a debate? I've got to listen to you. Hughes, poke holes Hughes version of a debate. Go on, then. Oh, for God's sake. shuts up. We're going to be here okay. all night. That's the problem. You've got to admit that I'm right, and then it gets right. over. You wrote, yeah, yeah, it's a nice try. You write in all, you'd make a good Christian. In all known writings in the first and second centuries, including those opposing Christianity, no one doubted. Oh, well, uh, it's interesting that you perceived it that way. I thought it was a compliment. No one doubted that Jesus lived. Now, what do you think? If there were writings that said Jesus didn't exist in that first couple of hundred years, what would have happened to those writings? We don't know, and I'm not sure it matters whether there's writings because you have demonstrated that the mythicist position pretty much relies on not believing what's written. 
but, but hang on. The question was, what would you expect would happen if somebody had written something that so, um, the existence of Jesus? I well, think Cam's, you can yeah, see where Cam's yeah, heading. He's making an, yeah, he's going with an argument from silence that no, all of the no. writings that said that Jesus didn't exist were destroyed by Christians. When Christians were hardly a dominant force in the world in the first century, I think that's that's speculative and straining. I don't think that's a good argument. Okay, so here's a history, um, a quick synopsis of what happened from a historical perspective. So Christians were sort of a minor thing, a little bit of annoyance in the Roman Empire for the first couple of hundred years, uh, annoyance mostly because they would refuse to participate in um, services to the state religion. They wouldn't eat the burned offerings to whichever god the emperor was trying to please that week because they were going to fight a war or the economy was struggling or they had a famine or, you know, a pandemic or whatever. Um, early 300s, Constantine becomes emperor, kills all of his enemies, declares himself sort of the the, the patron of the Christian religion um, and legalises it but doesn't make it the state religion. Uh, whether or not he was a Christian is still debated by scholars seems to me that he was really just uh, absorbing Christianity into the pantheon of the Roman gods because, as far as we know, he still considered himself the head of all of the other Greco-Roman religions, as was the role of the Pontifex Maximus, who was by then also the emperor. Uh, towards the end of the 4th century, uh, Theodosius I becomes emperor, gets blackmailed by the Bishop of Milan, St. Ambrose, into banning all other forms of religion and philosophy. All the ancient schools of philosophy got shut down, the Aristotelian schools, Platonic schools, the Stoics, the, the Epicureans, etc. All of the other religions, the state religions, got shut down. It became legal to worship anything other than Christianity in the entire Roman Empire, except for the Jews, they weren't allowed to convert or proselytize, but they were allowed to exist because of the, the heritage of Christianity. That happened around about 390 uh, CE, and then it, it, you know, it started happening. Uh, like the, the crushing of Christianity started happening over the course of the next century when Theodosius's sons took the throne, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then you had the sacking of Rome not too long after that, and it all divided up. But you, for the the, the great libraries were destroyed um, after the, the the ascension of Christianity. I mean, there have been some disasters before that, but the remaining great libraries got destroyed after the Christians uh, outlawed everything else and they, you had to be a Christian basically to uh, have any place in society. It was from about 400 CE, obviously, right through to the 17th century when you could start to ask questions about Christianity again in, in some pockets of the Enlightenment. Uh, so what we know about the books that would have survived in 400 CE is that, uh, you know, most of them ended up in monasteries and, you know, these books were written on vellum uh, or papyrus and papyrus, when the empire broke up, you couldn't get papyrus from Egypt reliably anymore, too many gangs and, and pirates and that kind of stuff. So they started using vellum for books, which is made from the skin of calves and things like that, depending on how quality you want. And the thing we know about vellum is it was very hard to produce, it was very expensive because it took a lot of work to produce. And it was usually produced in scriptoriums that were run by, there was, there was where Christian monks copied our books. Now, this I'm not going to be disputing any of this, Cameron, so you might want to get to the point where you say, you know, the, the actual argument. 
You want it's James a, it's first? A, it's a history lesson, Hugh, for people who don't know. Bear with me. So what happened was for the next, until the invention of the printing press, 1,000 years later, 1,100 years later, um, the, 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 the copying of books, and books had to be copied because they would wither away, you know, vellum rots, and if books weren't copied every couple of hundred years at least, they would just disappear. Now, what we know is that, you know, your monasteries, if they've got a, a – if they had a choice between copying a book on science and a book on, you know, Jesus, they're going to copy the book on Jesus. Um, and so what we found is – what we know, and the scholars know, is that all these books disappeared. Now, in the 14, in the 14th century, 15th century – a lot of guys, uh, Italian Renaissance guys, uh, ran around Europe to all the monasteries and tried to get their hands on or copy uh, any of these books that they could, and they'd save some Aristotle and some Cicero and some Lucretius and uh, things like that. But um, most of the books, I think it's assumed that something like uh, 99% of all books that were written uh, before the rise of Christianity uh, no longer exist, uh, and 70% of the 1% that do survive, are written by Cicero. Uh, so there you go. Um, so we don't know what was written down in those years because they nothing has survived. The vast majority of books, pamphlets, documents that were written down um, in, in, you know, pre-Theodosius just haven't survived uh, for either reasons of fair or foul. We, we, we don't know. So we don't know what people were saying back then. What has survived, uh, and we don't even have Celsus. I mean, we have people referring to Celsus and debating Celsus. We don't even have his original stuff. We don't really know what he said. We have people quoting him, I think, but I don't think we have the original documents. And that's the case with a lot of these ancient authors. If, they, if anything survives, it's in other early church fathers debating them. And their letters have survived. So it's we, we don't know what people said, is my point. Everything was destroyed. So to, to make an argument on, well, no one said he didn't exist 2,000 years ago is spurious because we don't know what people said then. All we know are what the documents that the Christians saved for 2,000 years. Yeah, so um, it's an argument from, from silence again. But you do have, um, as you admitted, uh, non-Christian sources um, documented in Christian sources, such as Celsus, Huge. who clearly accepts that um, Jesus exists. It's not a huge point. But we don't need to dwell on that. Hugh, can I just clarify? When you say it's an argument from silence, and and you seem to say it in a way that it it's like it's an ad hominem or it's a it's a logical fallacy almost. What? What do you it's mean not, by I don't a, I don't regard it as silence. I don't think it's um you can say that it's positive evidence that can go towards su supporting the conclusion that you that you're after. So when you say for instance that Paul's letters don't say what you would expect them to say that's a very speculative um but, uh, conclusion. I'm not saying that the argument can never be valid if that's where you're going, but I'm saying that it's not not a great um, positive um, piece of evidence to put towards your argument. You would be better off with an actual historical reference which points to the uh, existence of Jesus, which we have. So, so you seem to be saying gaps don't count. Is, is, is no. what you're saying? Gaps, 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that what's not there is not as good as evidence as what is there. So when Paul, for instance, says that Jesus was born, he descended from David, he was crucified, that's positive evidence. When you have Richard Carrier saying, but Paul doesn't say that Jesus said so, such and such at the Sermon on the Mount, that's an argument from silence so that yes. he didn't say that. So I'm sure the three of us can agree that the positive evidence is better than the argument from silence, but I'm certainly not saying that you can't sort of infer there might be an issue or there might be a problem. I, you can do that, but I don't find it compelling in the ways that it's used, particularly in relation to Paul. Okay, so the argument of silence is not uh, dismissed out of hand. You're just saying it's it's waiting is less. Okay, so yeah. um, so Hugh, rise of the church. Yeah, the rise of the church. Um, so by three hundred and fifty um, common era, we had thirty million followers. Uh, I've already spoken about. Uh, Christianity's growth um, directly out of um, Paul and uh, the early followers of Jesus. Um, so the Jesus myth theory has got to explain coherently how that happened and what inspired it. And I don't find any explanations credible that don't include um, the inspiration of a charismatic prophet who inspired certain people around him to devote their lives, risk their lives to um, spread the message. Um, so you're essentially saying if Jesus was not a real man and was just a made-up figure, then yeah. there could never have been this explosion. No, I'm absolutely or, not or, saying that. Saying what I'm saying, I'm saying that the mythicist has it can't just poke holes in the arguments for the existence of Jesus. The mythicist has got to explain the rise of a Christianity without the actual pivotal figure in Christianity. Well, we have made, going. But, but if he's, he's, he's made up, wouldn't that, wouldn't that explain it? Not very well, no. We know who the charismatic preacher was. It was Paul. All of the Christian churches on the face of the planet today go back to Paul. He is the founder of... Christianity as it exists across the world today. What's, it's all Pauline Christianity. What's, yeah, but that I can't I can't see it as credible that this that Paul made up out of thin air the, the name of Jesus and uh, called him the Messiah and said that he was crucified and that was persuasive without a solid backing of people who also knew that that had occurred. So no one, no one I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. No one is, no one is suggesting that Paul made it up. I said earlier there were Jesus groups that existed before Paul. Paul converted into one of those. So no one's saying he made it up. We know he did make up. Well, we believe that he did make up stuff. Like he said that Jesus appeared to him and told him stories about the coming end of the world. Do do you believe that that really happened? Your, your argument... Um, Just answer that, the question, Hugh. It's a simple question, Hugh. Do you believe that really happened, that Jesus sorry, appeared? Repeat, repeat that. I was thinking... The that. ghost of Jesus appeared to Paul and told him that the end of the world... Of course, yeah, the, Dam the, the Damascene conversion, yeah. But Do your you argument... No, 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 no. No, no, no. no. You can, it's, it's my not, turn now. It's the road to Damascus. And it, no, I'm not talking about the conversion. I'm talking... I asked a question. You didn't answer it. 
You can move on when you answer. Do you believe? No, no, no. I'm sorry, but Trevor believe? is mediating this. I'm not going to be sit here and bullied. I can I can state what, I, I, what I would like to say. I'm asking you to answer. What, what, what you're, can, what you're Cam, trying to you can just take it. You can just take it as a no, Cam. And he doesn't want to answer. <laughs> Whenever he avoids just it, we'll on. just take it as a no. No, no, I, 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 I don't know what you. I don't know what you're you going to problem with. What I'm saying. I, I do agree that Paul uh, didn't see the real person and that claimed to see a vision of Jesus and and he regarded that as as a message to him. Okay, but what what I was thinking of was that you're saying that you're positing an alternative that Paul was the real charismatic prophet. If that's the case, why did he have the need to talk about Jesus? Why didn't he just be the charismatic prophet himself? I'll get to that first step. I want to go back a bit because I was that was I was making a point. You already you you agree that Paul made stuff up and or was delusion. I mean, I don't want to say he just made it up, but agree, you know, yeah. as as secularists, we don't believe that the ghost of Jesus appeared to him. So Paul was making stuff up. We know that to be true. How much of what he was telling people he made up, how much he heard from other people, we don't know. But we do know that he was making something up. Um, As for why the church exploded over centuries, um, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, what the, the, the version of Christianity that Paul was selling, and again, I don't know if he made it up or if he borrowed it. We do know it was seems to be different from the version that Peter and James were selling based on the, the incident at Antioch and all those sorts of stories, uh, that story in particular that we have. Also fleshed out in Acts and that kind of stuff a little bit more. Um, we, we know that Paul's version included this idea of uh, paradise, the afterlife. All you have to do, uh, Mr. Uh, uh, follower of various Greco-Roman gods and a pantheon, is accept Jesus as one of the gods or replace your gods with Jesus, and you get, when you die, look, you, and we know that Paul was going after the lower classes, the uneducated, the poor. He wasn't going, uh, he had a couple of high-ranking followers, it sounds like, but mostly he's going after the poor, is he's saying to them, listen, your life sucks. I know. You're, you're, you're a slave or you're, you're, you're a wage slave. Life sucks to be you right now. But I'm here to tell you that it doesn't matter. Just accept Jesus because the whole world's coming to an end very, very soon. And when that happens, if you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will get paradise in uh well eternity in paradise now that's that's a that's a pretty good that's not only uh, you know it wasn't only a, a, a good selling point 2000 years ago it's a good selling point today there's 2.2 billion christians who still find that a compelling argument so i don't yeah. think it's really hard to understand how he was pitching this you promised them paradise in the afterlife something that by the way traditional Greco-Roman religions and even Judaism didn't talk about. They didn't really have a story for what happens when you die. If you were a great king or a great general, you might go to Elysian Fields or something, but they didn't really have a story. Paul's out there selling the ultimate story. So yes, I can understand why some people would convert for that. But the religion didn't really explode. It grew slowly over the first 350 years. It didn't really explode until Theodosius came along and used violence. 
to convert the entire Roman Empire. That's when it exploded. That's when the they explanation. Had, when they had something like 30, 35 million followers. Well, we don't really know how many followers they had. Nobody was recording a census on it. That's the, fi- that's the figure. That's the figure I've got. Look, I, yeah, I, I don't have a problem. I, 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 I don't have any problem with with what you're saying. But what I do have an issue with, with, and I think that's something we can think about, is that is it really credible to think that Paul and the early church members were telling stories about Jesus as a celestial or mythical uh, space alien deity, or were they telling stories of a real person who was born and all the things that it says in Paul's letters and was crucified and then miraculously was resurrected? Let's face it. We know that that's the story that Paul and the early church people were doing. So it's simply not credible to think that the church grew out of some other mythical story of which you can't tell me what what it is. Richard Carrier can't say exactly what it is because it's not documented anywhere. We're simply just speculating that it could be something else. It's much more credible to assume that it is that it is the stories that are consistent with Paul's letters and the stories that are consistent with the Gospels. I don't have any problem with everything else that you said, but I think it's very, very difficult for you to come up with an explanation as to why Paul says what he does about the real person, why the Gospels account for a real person, um, and why and let's and because of that story of a real person being resurrected is obviously so much more inspirational than a story of some sort of deity being resurrected. Not to mention all of the real earthly um, methods that are used to describe this, such as shedding of blood. Um, and being crucified on a cross and dying and, and all of that sort of thing and being buried. Um, I don't. I just can't imagine, I can't see for the life of me how it is possible that they were telling stories about something else that was celestial or, um, you know, some sort of mythological deity or whatever. They were telling stories about a real person because that's what's inspirational. That's what Christian evangelists talk about as being radical about the story. It was a very different Messiah than what they had predicted. And so the story, that, that's what um, rightfully uh, I think that New Testament scholars and ancient historians, that's what they put it down to. It's the, it's the power of the stories. And that's not to say anything about the power of the sort of messaging that you just described, but it is very, very difficult. And perhaps that's why you're, you're, a, you're an agnostic about Jesus' existence. And perhaps why also Richard Carrier is quoted to give Jesus a certain probability of existing. I've seen one in three mentioned. I think it's very difficult to imagine that they weren't talking about a real person. Of course they were. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Well, listen, you know, I I said earlier, maybe Paul believed that he had heard stories about Jesus and that they were real. Maybe he did believe that he was crucified in uh, an angelic realm. Certainly the ideas of beings in angelic realms wasn't something that was unheard of in Judaism. Um, That, you know, he may have believed that. He may have, and you know, that Jesus was sacrificed in the angelic realm. Again, he he doesn't tell us where and when these things happen. So it's open to interpretation as far as I'm concerned. But the point of this, though, about the rise of the church 
is these stories were powerful stories. You know, the, the afterlife story is a powerful story. The human sacrifice story is a powerful story, always has been. You know, the idea of, of somebody giving their life to save other people is as powerful today as I'm sure it's always been in human history. It, it really connects to something deep inside of us. So I think you're, you're right in that the stories were incredibly powerful. But there were other very large, powerful religions then and today that are obviously based on nonsense. I mean, Mithraism was a huge religion rivaled, in, if not bigger than Christianity for most of that few hundred years, according to most scholars. There were versions of Christianity like the Ebionites and the Marcionites and the Gnostics that were just as big, if not bigger than Pauline Christianity. They all got wiped out later on by you know, first Constantine and then Theodosius. Um, you, uh, you have today, the, like the Mormons I keep coming back to, who believe in this entire story in their book, the Book of Mormon, which is obviously complete and utter nonsense about the Nephites and the Lamanites coming from ancient Israel to the Americas and having these wars and the golden plates and Moroni, all yeah. completely nonsense. So I don't, I don't, I, I, story, I totally, I'm not, I totally I'm, agree. I, I totally agree with all of that. Go on, sorry. So the, the whole the, the whole argument that you keep making that people believe these stories, therefore there must be a kernel of truth in them. I just don't find that holds up if we look at any other religion or, or uh, like field of human endeavor, QAnon even, right? Millions of people can believe all sorts of things that are complete and utter nonsense. True. But the point is that they were talking... It's hard to imagine that Paul was not talking about a real person. We've accepted that, so we can move on. No, so, we haven't accepted that, but anyway, you've accepted that. <laughs> move on. Well, I think it's quite clear. Anyway, we can go on all night. So, um, Do you want well, to talk about... Uh, your... I don't think we need to talk about crucifixion. If you, no. If you, Scholarly consensus, kind of, do you want to just... Quickly, yeah. Because uh, that's probably a good argument for you, Hugh. Yeah, so... Um, I think, as I said in the article, um, uh, I had assumed that all New Testament scholars would have been evangelical Christians. It turns out that that's absolutely not the case. Um, we'd want, um, like, virtually all reputable scholars think that Jesus exists, so therefore we would want good reasons to embrace um, the Jesus myth um, we would want stronger evidence, not just poking holes in the evidence that we do have. Um, if the most studied group in the whole world agree on a particular set of facts, then maybe we should lift our guard when presented with our fringe theories. So, you know, there is a, quite a number of um, atheist uh, professors who um, agree. We've talked about Bart Diemen, um ad nauseum. Um, they're like... I say atheists, say non-Christian. Um, Gerd Ludemann, the um, German New Testament historian, professor at the University of Göttingen. Um, he, um, Jesus' death as a consequence of the crucifixion is indisputable, he says. Um, John Dominic Croisson, Irish New Testament professor and historian, uh, he, he teaches that Jesus existed but wasn't the son of God. But he was 
quote, that he was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, since both Josephus and Tacitus agree with the Christian accounts on at least that basic fact. Um, Michael Grant, um, <clears throat> classicist, um, former Vice-Chancellor at Queen's University of Belfast, um, blah, blah, blah. In recent years, no serious scholar has ventures, ventured to postulate that the non-historicity non of Jesus, or at any rate, very few, and they have not succeeded in disposing of the much stronger, indeed very abundant evidence to the contrary. Um, okay, so to summarise... Ed Parrish, San Ed Parrish Sanders, um, still going. Sorry, guys, I had to listen to a lot. The historical <laughs> figure of Jesus... I. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar. Uh, I shall first offer a list of statements about Jesus that meet two standards. They're almost beyond dispute and they belong to a framework of his life and especially of his public career. Jesus was born 4 BCE near the time of the death of Herod the Great. He spent his childhood in Nazareth. Um, we didn't get to denying that Nazareth exists, but I presume that we now accept it exists given there's archaeological evidence of that. That was just my end thing. He was a Galilean village. He was baptised by John the Baptist. He called disciples. He taught in um, towns, etc., etc. Um, and then you get um, uh, R. Joseph Hoffman, who is at least to some extent an agnostic uh, or has been and uh, varies back and forth. Uh, Hoffman is a, a degree in theology uh, he's former chair of the Committee for Scientific Examination of Religion. Um, his quote, the, fr the free thought rabble have chosen Richard Carrier as their standard bearer without any reason to put their trust in his inane conclusions and methods. A man who has never published a significant piece of biblical scholarship, never been peer reviewed, never been vetted, never held an academic position. His reputation depends on deflecting his mirror image of himself as a misunderstood, self-construed genius onto a few dozen, dozen equally uh, maladroit followers. The endorsement by amateurs, by the, the endorsement of amateurs by amateurs, is becoming a rampant, annoying, and distressing problem for biblical scholarship. Um, the, dis the disease these bogus spread is ignorance disguised as common sense, and he goes on and goes on. Um, while there is some very slight chance that Jesus did not exist, the evidence that he existed is sufficiently and cumulatively strong enough to defeat those doubts. Whew, okay, where to start there? I mean, with those quotes at the end, like the, all the no true Scotsman arguments uh, are great, aren't they? Like, no, uh, all reputable scholars believe that Jesus existed. How do we know? Because if you don't believe Jesus existed, you are by definition not a reputable scholar. So No, you'd have to be able to name a, 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 um, a, a New Testament professor or um, professor in ancient history. Surely if this argument has any legs at all, there is someone who is tenured in the world, why would ancient history deny people tenure? You can understand to some extent uh, theological studies, particularly at uh, Christian schools, but we're talking the whole world here. We're talking about people who are atheist, Jewish, other religions who who study and are professors in these disciplines. Um, it's it's not just a no Scotsman argument. It's actually pretty um, pretty convincing in the same way that the three of us are not experts in climate science. We're not experts in medicines to be able to argue vaccines from first principles. Um, we are not New Testament scholars. We do not have access to all of the 
all of the materials. We haven't spent our whole lives um, uh, looking at it. We have seen some arguments back and forth from different people. Um, so it makes sense to take some note of the fact that virtually all experts um, agree. And the time is 9.12. Ready to take a break yet, Hugh? Can I jump in? <laughs> so after the No True Scotsman articles, and also I like some of these quotes, indisputable. Some, this, the existence is indisputable, really. And it's a and you know Carrier is inane. Uh, got a PhD, so I don't know how inane he is. But let's say I'm not here to defend Richard Carrier. He can defend himself. But like he he himself makes a good point though that it wasn't that long ago, and I'm talking within decades, that virtually all scholars believe that King Arthur really existed, that Moses really existed, that they were genuine historical figures by the red herring. It's the point that, see, unlike climate change or vaccinations or epidemiology or the hard sciences where, you know, good scientists are building their uh, uh, positions on how these things work based on their interpretation of hard data, religion and history, generally speaking, is not like that because we have very little hard data, as you've pointed out uh, correctly, when you go back far enough. So we're in, you know, it's really the business of interpreting the very little amount of data that we have. So it's a very different domain. You can't really compare it to, you know, debating scholars in the hard sciences. But as you say, I'm not a scholar, you're not a scholar. When I made my film, the reason I only had, apart from David Fitzpatrick, who was brought in as like basically the the skeptical voice, the David other eleven, yeah. sorry Fitzgerald, sorry David, the uh, the other uh, eleven people all had PhDs, so I didn't allow theologians, I didn't allow amateurs. They're all uh, people with a PhD in New Testament studies or religious studies or ancient history. Um, you know, uh, I I don't know what it takes to be a professor in a university around the world these days that's dealing with New Testament or religious studies issues. But I suspect that if you work in one of those departments and you don't, and you openly profess that you don't believe there's enough evidence to believe that Jesus existed, y your career is probably limited. It's very difficult, I would imagine, to not in, maintain not a ancient, career. Not in ancient history, I wouldn't have thought. But I think, I, look, I, I think, I think that's would. I think that's a difficult argument for you. How can you possibly explain that? You can't. It's it's just it is it is very difficult. And I grant you that the historical method is something that's quite different from the scientific method. But it is still a very strict academic um, institute. Uh, 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 you know, uh, it, it, there are very strict standards um, that need to be abided by, and you know that from studying history yourself. So, why don't we move on to discuss perhaps whether Hang on a sec. Before we move, <laughs> I think I'll give Cameron a chance to, to finish there. Yeah. Just admit I'm right, Cameron. I'm right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just bend over and grab the site for me here. Um, you know, here's, here's, here's why I find it very difficult to take this argument seriously. So let's look at all the evidence, the positive evidence for the existence of Jesus that you have presented 
very eruditely to us here uh, this evening, ladies and gentlemen. Are you doing a wrap-up or are you still talking about the academic <laughs> sort of um, majority? Are you, are you moving to wrap-up? No, no. Well, it's That's a bit of both, fine. but are it, you going to leave this, the academic it, majority thing now? No, it, this is part of the academic majority, because because Hugh's quoting people saying it's indisputable, and all reputable scholars believe this. Here's the thing: the evidence that we have for the existence of Jesus as a human being is one. A couple of brief mentions by Paul that he was that he heard. <laughs> he heard. Oh, it's only a Seven. couple. Seven letters, the whole religion. No, I'm yeah. talking about a couple of mentions of Jesus. In his seven letters, there's a handful of mentions of the same mantra, basically, that he was born of a woman and that he was crucified, he was born under the law. Three things, basically. That's it. He mentions that he heard those things and he mentions that he met Peter and James. There, you know, what they told him really about all of this, he doesn't mention. You have that, then you have a bunch of people who came after Paul retelling Paul's stories, and that includes the Gospels, that includes Josephus and Tacitus and Suetonius and Pliny. Um, that's it, that's the full extent of the evidence that Jesus existed now. The Gospels, I, I, did you mention the Gospels, I all the, the Gospels. A, a, they're all, apocryphal texts? All written by, well, uh, all, except for maybe the Nagamadi, the, the, not Nagamadi, the, um, yeah, some of the Nagamadi stuff and some of the um, the other one that I can't recall uh, that yeah, they found that, very much. That, that's hold on. all fine. Hold on, hold on, not finished, hey, not finished, not finished. We're in wrap-up. Right. So, not finished, yeah. not finished. Yeah. So, we already argued this. That's the sum of the evidence. All those other things that were written came from Pauline communities. So it all comes down to a handful of Paul quote, uh, Paul references where he's saying what he heard was these, he heard this story. That's all we've got. That's the sum total of it. And then people who just built on top of Paul later on. To, to, so I look at that and I go, well, it's not nothing, but it's not much. And, but I grant that it's something, the brother of James saying it's something. Paul seems to believe this is what I will give it. Now, why should I believe the people who told Paul? I don't know. Why should I believe Paul? I don't know. But I believe that Paul seems to believe this. Now, to look at that and say the evidence that Jesus existed is indisputable when that's the subtotal of, of the evidence that you've got, I just find that laughably inane, and that's ridiculous. That is the skinniest argument for the existence of anybody in history. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't exist, but it also isn't very much to go on. So I think any scholars who say absolutely, 100%, like Carrier says, based on his analysis, he gives it a one-third chance, one out of three chance. At least he's going, listen, I can't be convinced either way, but I think it's about here. Um, Personally, I would say I, I think he probably didn't, but if I had to take a position, but I don't really feel the need to do that. But, you know, to say that these reputable scholars and that then they're saying that it's indisputable when that's the, that's the scant evidence that you've got, to me that's just, that's ridiculous. That's, a, that's worse than the anti-vax conspiracy theories that I hear from the QAnon 
tards, okay. you know? So you're, you're focused on one comment, which is indisputable. I guess the problem you have is that you have to explain why all virtually all scholars um, accept that um, Jesus exists, like including, say, George Albert Wells, who wrote one of the seminal mythicist texts and then recanted his position and now agrees that Jesus existed. Um, you know, the, um, the question is, when there's that little evidence, why do all, why are these scholars so convinced? Why are ancient historians and New Testament scholars all on maths so convinced? Yeah. You know, I, I find the evidence convincing. I know some people don't. I don't know how much of it is motivated reasoning, but I think that people listening to this should be sceptical about the mythicist claims and they should they should decide for themselves whether they should listen to my opinion. I'm not a scholar whether they should listen to Trevor's opinion or whether they should listen to Cameron's or whether they should in fact trust the, the universal uniform agreement of all scholars. You know, I think that's a, that, that is a strong argument. I think this is a good point where we've got to start wrapping up, but I just wanted to, unless you, if I think you've both sort of um, made your points and you're probably just going to go around in circles from now, but I, I just wanted to briefly mention, um, I got an email from uh, one of the listeners, um, Paul, different, not the Paul, different Paul, and um, he was saying that, because um, we were talking about with uh, political reporting the last few weeks about the sort of uh, horse race journalism where it wasn't really talking about policies and how it was a shallow sort of view of what was going on in Australian politics. And he said... But it occurred to me after listening to your prayer room plans and your plan to have some kind of amusing debate over whether Christ actually existed, um, that that's a bit of horse race journalism on religion. Most Christians wouldn't give two hoots if you could prove conclusively that Christ never existed and the whole thing was made up in the 18th century by Franciscan monks to get laid. They'd just go back to believing. You're not asking what are the issues that matter and does religion answer them. You're just engaged in mocked battles of personality so according to paul we've potentially wasted the last <laughs> one hour and 50 minutes i hate to and, say and the tenor of debate seems to have supported his conclusion i'm a podcaster i've been i've wasted the last 16 years of my life. Yeah. well i think there was something in that but it is worth looking just as a matter of interest at at the historical basis behind these things and um, okay, we we didn't get into the weeds of the morality of religion and all the rest of it, and and maybe it is a sort of an esoteric argument between three white guys who are just um, kidding themselves over all this. But anyway, uh, the father just referred to us as the father, the son, <laughs> and, the, and the, the holy view. <laughs> but maybe um, at another time, I would like to talk about, you know, when it comes to sort of the typical atheist arguments. I'm not really interested in, in arguing the existence of God with, with believers. My sort of um, thing is just get out of the way. I want more secular laws, and I don't really care what people believe in. But I think one of the problems with sort of the whole atheism argument is that we ignore the community that religion provides. And if we're just going to try and convince people through rational argument that God or Jesus didn't exist and rationally it doesn't make sense, 
uh, and that it's just, just a silly notion. I think it's going to, um, even the best argument is not going to work unless people are offered an alternative that provides some community. Because I think people join religions for community as much as anything. It's kind of like following a football team. Like you decide at one point to pledge your loyalty to the Broncos or something. And it doesn't matter. They will, they'll disappoint you and their players will have scandals and they'll sleep with people they shouldn't sleep with and do all sorts of things, but you stick with them. And, and it's, it's that commitment to it that adds to the emotional return that you get from it. And atheism doesn't provide that emotional return. It just, it leaves people empty. And so I think that's part of the problem with if with the atheism arguments is providing somebody with something supportive and community, because uh, that's really what they're getting from a religion in a lot of cases. But Cam, you're shaking your head there like I'm talking shit. Is that is am I talking shit, am I? No, I'm thinking, well, where were you when we were running Sunday Assembly uh, four, five, six years ago? And you I, know? in my notes, Sunday Assembly, <laughs> tell people what it was. Tell people what it, it was. It was a Sunday morning community for atheists where we would have scientists and philosophers and artists as our guest speakers. We'd sing rock songs. We would do community work, get involved with, you know, various charitable causes. Uh, yeah, we tried to get that off. We spent four years trying to get that off the ground, Chrissy and I, and just <laughs> did what we discovered is really hard to get atheists out of bed on a Sunday morning unless it's maybe for football or fishing or drinking. Well, maybe we should have just had the meetings at the football field with lots of booze and we're at the beach. Yeah, so we collapsed it a few years ago. But yeah, we did. We we got behind it and started it here in Brisbane for the same reason. You know, we my wife grew up as a Mormon in Utah, and we we know the how um, powerful their sense of community is, and we wanted to try and replicate that in a secular slash atheist uh, setting. Um, but the other part I was shaking my head is this idea that atheism leaves people empty and cold. I, you know, I find the complete opposite is true. I'm, I'm in awe. Uh, the more I learn about the laws of physics and how they work, I'm just in awe of, you know, the, the, the world around me and, and my place in it. So I find it incredibly uplifting and, and, and inspiring and exciting. But, but, but you also like to be alone and avoiding crowds of other people. And you well, quite- you know... After you've seen, you know, the kind of people like you I have to deal with if I leave my room, that's that's why I never leave. I have to deal with people. Poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, true. Anyway, that's a topic for another time. Um, Can I comment on that one? Yes, quickly? please. Um, I, I was going to say I disagree with what Paul was saying there in, in relation to that quote from H.L. Mencken that I put in my article. And I think one of the key things about atheism, it's – um. It's that, like Mencken said, I believe that no discovery of fact, however trivial, can be wholly useless to the race and that no trumpeting of falsehood, however virtuous in intent, can be anything but vicious. It's that sort of emphatic um, sense of virtue in what's true. And I disagree with Paul in saying that Christians wouldn't care if um, they found out incontrovertibly that Jesus didn't exist. I'm pretty sure they'd care quite a lot. And um, I think that's supported also by the fact of how keen secular secularists and atheists are keen to jump on the on the um, the myth sort of argument. You know, you know, not saying that they genuinely don't believe it, but if um, 
but you know it's it, there's motivated reasoning on all sides um I so, so. I, I, I tend to agree. i think it's important Sorry, yeah i, well, tend I to agree with important. paul i think it's important but i don't i don't personally care too much in terms of being an atheist naturally we're not going to care as much whether he exists the fact is we don't know enough about his life we don't regard him as as divine so therefore we don't really need to say that he didn't exist um it's it's neither here nor there well that was the point i made at the beginning i don't think atheists really care i do think religious people would care and i think we've seen this with christians and with ufo cults and QAnon cults and all sorts of cults um you know with christians though in particular you know they've they've learned in the last few hundred years that the earth is in the center of isn't in the center of the universe and they've they've learned a lot of things that have um they've had to process and deal with that were uh, central to to christianity for millennia they've had to process new science and it never really puts a dent in them i mean christianity is declining in the in western countries uh, quite substantially so something is getting through to them might be just a generational thing that uh, when you know old christians die off and new people aren't converting outside of certain communities but I, I think christians would just roll with the punches i think if you know evidence came out they'd just go oh well you know like a lot of christians say today too when talking about the old testament well it's really just supposed to be read as as uh, mythology or as, uh, you know, foundational stories. You're not supposed to take the story of Abraham and Moses and this and that and the other as true. I think they would uh, do that with all the Jesus stuff as well in a heartbeat because it, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's like trying to convince a Democrat that Joe Biden is in the second coming of Jesus uh, 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 or that Trump is in, inherently evil. You know, people build their identities around a certain construct of faith and belief and to, uh, uh, to 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 walk away from that they literally have to reinvent their identity which is a big thing depending on what your age is at well it's very difficult for people to leave religions and leave cults so i i, I think a lot of them would just uh, roll with it and go ah oh, well you know new day new new philosophy very good all right well i reckon um you thrashed it out. You've made your points. Hopefully, everybody in the chat room enjoyed the discussion. <laughs> Everyone's exhausted. It's been two hours. Well, Hugh, you Thanks. wanted another argument and you got I one. Ran out I, of hope, I hope you're satisfied. Yeah, I get another All right, dear, okay. All right, dear listener, that was the podcast. Uh, join in next week for something completely different. Oh, and in your spare time, Google Cam Riley podcasts and you'll see that he's involved with a whole bunch of them. And Go and sign up and listen to some of them because it's worthwhile. And go and um, and if you Google marketing the Messiah, you will find Hughes, uh, not Hughes, Cam's movie, um, basically dealing with how the Messiah was marketed and a lot of the stuff we've talked about uh, worth it. So you'll find that. Google it. And uh, thanks, Cam. Thanks, Hugh. Talk to everybody Thank you, another gents. time. Bye for now. Thanks, Bye boys. Now. See you. Bye bye. What do you think the average IQ of this group is, huh? Can you see Texas up there on your high horse? What do you know about these people? Just observation and deduction. See a propensity for obesity, poverty, a yen for fairy tales. Folks putting what few bucks they do have in the little wicker baskets being passed around. I think it's safe to say that nobody here is going to be splitting the atom, Marty. You see that? Your fucking attitude. 
Not everybody wants to sit alone in an empty room beating off the murder manuals. Some folks enjoy community, the common good. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty Australian to I think ten dollars and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you Get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.